Hello, I'm Robbie Ryan and I'm on the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how you doing? I'm you look doing. Like you, you, you look like you're doing well. Yeah, yeah. You sent me our uh, fancy new uh, webcam setup. So, uh, you know, here it is. Here, 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 here you are in way more resolution than I've ever seen you on this podcast. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's definitely the most resolution. Uh, resolution-y. It's like, it's like <laughs> I can almost reach out and touch you. <laughs> it's like being in the same room. Anyway, I still Sorry. think your setup looks better. I need to work on my lighting and some other fine tuning. But I literally just got it set up just now. So for anyone who's watching us on the uh, on the YouTube, welcome there. to my messy office. <laughs> That's the great thing about that focal length. Hard to tell. Hard to tell mm. it's messy at all. I, I oh, really, yeah, yeah. This is like you got me like the, the Barry Lyndon lens from uh, from NASA. That's crazy low f-stop. So I can just throw everything out of focus. That is the Sony G Master 50 millimeter f 1.4 or something like that. Some 1.2. I don't know. what it's It's fast, though. It's fast lens. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, more people should get uh, should up their uh, webcam game in this in this kind of a way. I I, I think I'm going to make people feel uh, jealous when I have to do Zoom meetings with them because they're going to be like, why does why did why does it look like I'm you know watching an Errol Morris documentary about you and I just look like I'm, I've I've got a crappy uh, little fifty cent camera on my laptop here. Your goal was to give everyone webcam envy, I'm sure. So always has been, always has been. Hey, who is on the show today? Uh, it is delightful. We have Robbie Ryan on the show, and he is just a wonderful guy. And uh, he's so much and, fun to talk to. I'm so glad he's back on the show. And he shot Poor Things, which you and I saw together on on the Fox lot at a special screening. And wow, when I talk about movies that like really caught me off guard this year, that's like at the top of my list. I just think. It's uh, it's beautiful. The story really stuck with me. The performances are amazing. Like, uh, just just loved it. I did as well. It, it's really unexpected. And we had to kind of hold our tongues a little bit because, uh, you know, every once in a while, the PR people for uh, a movie or a project don't want it to go out right away. And they actually kind of wanted to time the, the release of this episode. It's called an embargo. An embargo, exactly. I'm really glad that we get to talk about it, especially since... Poor Things just won a Golden Globe for uh, Emma Stone and also for Best Picture Musical or Comedy, which the Associated Press called an upset. I think a lot of people were thinking Barbie on, was going to take there. that on. Yeah. Hold on there. Yeah. You're, you're getting right into our close focus without saying, what's our close focus? So, And now, close focus. So I, I okay 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 fine I jumped the gun a little bit I mean but this is, is all you know kind of related since we're talking about poor things and I, I'm excited about poor things and you know I, I think this might be sort of like an indicator of the Oscars you know in a few months from now I think it very much is and we have to remain somewhat agnostic on this show because we talk to a lot of people who are responsible for making some of these really high-end beautiful pictures but I will say that it is a little bit of an upset and Barbie kind of got. Am I going to say snubbed? 
at the Golden Globes. We make fun of the Golden Globes. Honestly, we've made merciless fun of, of the Golden Globes year to year. You know for what? The last, they like, deserve two or some mocking. You know, back in, back a few years ago, it was only a couple of years ago they had quite the scandal going on. So it's, it's like it's not it's not like it was undeserved. I, to their credit, and no, they never called me. I said, you know, when that when when Golden they were Globes, gonna let, call me. Yeah, I was like Golden Globes. You know, if you need some help figuring out your shit, basically call me. I'll I'll, I'll tell you what you should do. I'll Clearly, settle your hash. They did not call me, but they seem to have employed some appropriate people. They like doubled or tripled their membership. The uh, membership now is much much more diverse than it than it was, and I think that the Golden Globes are probably way stronger for it. And I think that the uh that you know the awards selection that they they handed out yesterday it, it reflects that i actually think it, it it feels more egalitarian so I'm, I'm i'm all for it and to anyone who's saying and i can actually see the argument for you know i don't think that there has been a bigger mover of culture as a movie this year than barbie i think it's hard to argue that that anything else is bigger and it not winning all these awards um it's one of those things where it's like, on the one hand, I'm not saying it doesn't deserve to win more awards. It's a great movie. On the other hand, it made a billion dollars. And it would obviously be an amazing feather in the cap of Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig, Ryan Gosling, Rodrigo Prieto, all the people responsible for making this movie. But on the flip side, it would be nice to see a movie that, like a Poor Things, maybe could use a little bit more of a boost not because it's doing badly at all, but just because it's to to call it smaller than Barbie is to say it's any other movie. Barbie is the biggest movie of the year. And I feel like a lot of times on the in these awards shows, when something is a runaway crazy hit, it tends to not win as many awards all the time. But uh, that being said, I was kind of surprised to see Oppenheimer killing it at the awards, uh, you know, because uh, Oppenheimer did pretty damn well, too. <laughs> you know, it, it sure did. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't like separate it and say like, well, Oppenheimer is a serious historical film and Barbie is fluff. I think Barbie isn't fluff. I think that that's what people like about it. I think Barbie has a real point of view and a real thing to say. And in a way, it's looking forward and Oppenheimer is looking backwards. And obviously, Oppenheimer is a cautionary tale for the future as well. But I don't necessarily say one is more deserving than the other. They're both huge movers of culture, you know, this year or last year. I actually thought that Margot Robbie might have taken that uh, just because I knew that there was a lot of people talking about her incredible performance in I, Tonya going back to like 2018, and she didn't she, win in 2018. She has been turning in nothing but amazing performances no. since she showed up on the scene. And I think to most of us, it was The Wolf of Wall Street was the Wolf first movie we ever noticed yeah. her in. Yeah. And that was, I think it's been more than 10 years. I, I've never seen her put in a bad performance. I was recently re-watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She doesn't have a big scene-stealing role in that, but she's... She's great. And I remember this time last year, there were two movies that she was in that had underperformed. And people were saying, is Margot Robbie, is she bad for box office? So neither one of those cases did I think it was even on her. Anyone who's been paying any attention to her career from the beginning knows that she is the whole package as, as a performer. It wasn't just the Golden Globes that uh, happened this weekend. Also, the Creative Arts Emmys. And yeah. uh, if you're not familiar with the Creative Arts Emmys, this encompasses cinematography and uh, editing and all sorts of you know related uh, technical crafts. And um, big winners, including the, uh, the Weird Al Yankovic movie, uh, Weird, which you and I both really liked and we talked about on the show. Love it. 
Also, uh, one of our clients from Hot Red Cameras and uh, friend of the show, guest of the show, Mike Prickett for 100 Foot Wave. Uh, hey, Mike. Yeah, also several series did really well. Uh, Welcome to Wrexham took like five. Uh, White Lotus took several. Uh, Natalie Kingston from uh, Blackbird. Blackbird, she, yeah, we had her on the show. She won Best Cinematography. Um, Yay, Natalie. It, it does fill me with enormous pride when anyone we've had on the show is winning all these awards. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel uh, picked up a Creative Arts Emmy. Uh, I believe it was uh, David Mullins. Uh, Beef won some Creative Arts Emmys as well, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's, you know, Larkin's work. So that this is, I mean, a lot of our a lot of our guests of the show, clients of Hot Rod Cameras, had a really fantastic night. A really big weekend for award shows, and it's, it's really exciting. So uh, I think without further ado, we should get to the interview with Robbie Ryan. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We're, we're so excited to have you. We, uh, we both went to, uh, to the Fox lot last week and, and got to see the screening of it on Thursday night. So we got to see oh, it right. so you, on a big screen. It's quite recently thought of brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful, amazing, uh, just rip shit bonkers. I just love how, how bonkers that movie is. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't pull any punches, all right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> bombastic. I actually want to ask you a question that was like, before the movie even started, opening credits, I looked over to Ilya and I said, what aspect ratio is this? And because, you know, I feel like one of the things going into especially your collaborations uh, with Yorgos is that any kind of tropey, ruley thing that we expect from a movie like the one we're watching, like a period piece or like, like this, expect it to be played with or changed or moved around or whatever. So what, what aspect ratio did you film in? Uh, it's one six six aspect ratio, so one six six to one. The golden ratio, it's called. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I asked Ilya if it was one six six. I used to be a projectionist, and I was. It looked one six sixty to me, but I couldn't tell. Yeah, well, we kind of we kind of ended up shooting some Vista Vision on this film, and Whoa. you know, so that is one six six natively. So I think we were we were filming one six six anyway, and then you're like, oh, I think we should try some Vista Vision because that's. Uh, a one six six aspect as well. I was like, oh yeah, it is too. So like that was really exciting to kind of like use such a, a nice format that it was natively one six six. And I always thought, I always thought those uh, Hitchcock films were two three five. You know, yeah. but basically Vista Vision was a format that came out in the fifties that was one six six, and they were able to crop it to one to two three five. You know, oh. more information. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, the one six six thing was something we were keen on doing. I, it's it's because. 185 is a little bit widescreen and 43 is a bit too square so 166 is great for portraiture it's hard for me to think of a film i've seen recently like a lot i'm not usually aware of the lensing in the way that i'm aware of your lensing and uh i was describing it to my wife as it's like if uh you know guillermo del toro and stanley kubrick and terry gilliam all collaborated on a movie all together there's very deliberate zooms there's a lot of wide angle there's a lot of like i don't know if it's technically fisheye but they're you know like i didn't know about the vistavision thing so that plants five thousand other questions in my mind about <laughs> about how those lenses interact with vistavision um how much of the movie was shot on vistavision well the the problem with VistaVision is it's really hard to get source a camera, you know? It's yeah. like it, one thing saying we'll try and shoot on it, but to find a camera was pretty difficult. Uh, well, to find a sync camera is nigh on impossible. Oh, uh, really? I, 
I can guarantee you that. I think there's only one of them in the world, and uh, that's that was not available to us. Uh, so we ended up getting this camera called a Bowcam, which is a kind of um, it's sort of like a Frankenstein camera of its own. It's really noisy. So because we like Jorgis really likes to use like sound sync, so that was a bit of a game changer that he couldn't use the Vista Vision for sync stuff. So he was like, "Oh well, we'll just do it where, where there is no sync needed," and that was the reanimation sequence. So most of the Vista Vision is used within that scene, and mm. uh, it's beautiful format. Like it is really like it's a really lush kind of thing. And we shot, I think it might be one of the first films to have shot thirty-five mil Ectochrome Vista Vision. So. But that's a first and um you know that's the results from that were like wow it's so gorgeous you know and i i listened to the interview that uh that you did with Ilya a few years ago i, I re-listened to it and you seem like someone who's very excited about shooting on film like you said you'll still shoot short films but you would you would only do them on if they were <laughs> filming on film and i'm sure that we're we have some listeners right now who even if they uh love and admire this movie say how different would this movie look if it was shot on say an alexa lf or something what is the advantage that you get out of shooting on film uh, if there's a way to describe it it's it's a it's a difficult one to sort of completely clarify, but I, I do think when you shoot on film, the results you get back are always a surprise in a good way. You've never, I've never been like, God, that looks terrible. You know, it always mm. has a, there's, there's a great contrast range to film stock. There's a great color rendition. Skin tones are always really interesting. There's never anything where you go, oh, that looks terrible. You know, it, it kind of always has something to build on. And like, I take a lot of stills on film now as well. And, um, you know, when you get into your Lightroom, you always kind of like, there's always something interesting about film negative. And um, I think the whole uh, ethos of shooting on film is really important as well. The way you, you kind of, send it all to a laboratory you kind of you filmed it and you you don't look at it back straight away you kind of it goes away and it gets developed and you mm -hmm. know it's, chrome would take two or three days to get that back so you've kind of moved on psychologically from that sequence you've shot so i think that's a really important part of the whole film filmmaking on celluloid process is that you kind of film it you know it's going to be good you send it away and if there's something wrong, you have insurance to fix the problem. But <laughs> it, hopefully that doesn't happen. But generally, I think you've moved on to another scene and you're doing other work and you know that what you get back. And like, I love just getting back um, stills, like high res stills from the lab. And you go, OK, that looks great. I'm sure that's going to be a good so that there's nothing wrong with that. And it's always like when we were getting the ectochrome stuff back, I'd bring that onto the camera van and we all like, look at the ectochrome. It looks great. You know, so it's it's like opening a little present every time you get this, the, the high res. <laughs> And in a, in a way, when you're shooting digitally, you're seeing it as best it's going to get, kind of, because you've you've kind of figured out a lookup table that you really want the film to look like. So you've done a lot of work prior to a digital film with your whole sort of color space. And it kind of feels like the magic's lost a little bit. And I know that is a silly sort of uh, argument, but it really kind of matters to me that I can forget about it, knowing that the film will deal with it and be graded later on and it'll work and it will look exactly what we want it to look like, you know, or like it will it'll look close to what we're hoping, you know? Yeah, yeah. So let's kind of go to the beginning of this process. So this is uh, your second feature with Yorgos, correct? And then you have a third one that you've already made that uh, I think is either in post-production or I, I, I'm sure we can't yeah, talk it's, about it's, that yet. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's actually been on the internet now. It's been given a new name. It's called Kinds of Kindness. Yeah, hmm. and one's coming out. I, I, they're still in the edit process, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like, because these films are so unique, uh, you know, when I saw The Favourite, it like, you have thoughts in your head about like, w what it's going to be like to watch a period piece in that movie. 
and I think uh, I compared it on the old podcast to Barry Lyndon. Like it immediately subverts what you expect from a period piece. But I feel like this this film takes a lot of what the two of you did on that even further visually, obviously for good reason. But like, just talk about your collaboration uh, with Yorgos and like what shows up when you read the script and how do the two of you come up with these completely out of the box visual ideas that you go with? I think, yeah, Yorgos likes to get a team of people that he kind of trusts around him, you know, and I, I'm always catching up with whatever his visual ideas are. Like, he's so kind of prolific with ideas that you kind of go, okay, well, you want to try that? Okay, let's try that. And, you know, I am I I feel like, uh, you know, he gives me a lot of challenges that I go yeah. off and I try and find a lens that he's sort of trying to talk about. And the favourite, we got lucky with that 6 mil lens, which Panavision didn't really kind of show it to many people and they're like oh yeah we have this lens and it was like Jorgos loved it I was like this is fucking great this lens you know so on this film there was a few challenges as far as trying to get like portrait lenses and even wider fisheye lenses that created this vignette and the film has a lot of that in it you know and we we ended up with these uh Petzval lenses which I'm sure you guys probably have heard of they were sort of it's funny because they're very old lenses that were made for projectors that in digital cinematography and photography people started like going this is like the dream lens you know what do they call it the dream lens or something where has this really dreamy focused bokeh on it and Jorgos is so up on his lenses he knew that these would would be interested to test and they were the ones after a, a lot of like we did a huge lens test day they're the ones that he really liked for the portrait stuff so you know he has an idea of what he wants to try and get and like the, that, those lenses do feel a little bit like of another era and they've got a kind of a you know painterly quality another worldly quality to them and they're they're not technically correct lenses as anyway or perform because they're they're kind of detuned to a certain level and they've but they just have a lot of character and I think he wanted that very much in this film and then the four mil we ended up with a four millimeter lens which is made for 16 mil photography but um when you stick it on because I was doing some stuff on digital like on you know we when you're shooting on an LF these days if you have any lens that's not like a large format lens it gets this crazy vignette on it yeah so I was like, okay, well, why don't we try that with the, if we get a 16 mil lens, it won't cover the full 35 mil negative. You might get that vignette idea. And luckily that's exactly what we got. We It just fully fits inside the 35 mil negative. So you have this vignette. And I don't know whether we pulled back a bit so you can see a little bit more vignette around. I don't think we did actually. So um, yeah, that was a great, that was a sort of like, and I remember Jorgos like test, I go, oh, really? this is a really interesting, I like this one, you know? So that became... The, if the scene needed that extra bit of madness, the four mil would come out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that. It's, uh, it's like a porthole effect almost, and it yeah, sort of yeah. happens. Uh, I thought it was probably being created after the fact. I didn't think you were putting a sixteen millimeter lens on a thirty-five millimeter camera and then just taking what you got. It, it feels the movie is almost like a stew. It's a visual stew of all of these different sorts of components that kind of come up uh, and not in haphazard way but like very intentional way at certain moments at certain key things like the use of the wide angle the use of the porthole lens the use of i mean even just the combination of the color and the black and white and the interstitials that goes through i have to imagine that some of this you're figuring out like hey you know what would be great right now put this on like i i think some of that's got got to be there it feels almost improvisational at some moments but 
are you ever covering yourself? Are you ever saying, you know what, we're going to do it this way and we're also going to do it this other way because we're not sure. How do you guys make the choice? You You just make the choice and go. Yeah. No, you've got, you've you've landed on it pretty well there. It's (laughs) a very simple film really. So, you know, what Yorgos does is he gets his tools. He gets his tools. He chooses his language. He says, this film, I want to try and do a lot of zooms. Like we talked about Fassbinder films. He said, look at these films. You've got so much developing zoom shots that you could almost do the whole scene on that. And he was very, very much like using that as the spine of what would be the language. And then we could in, like spot it with like the wide lens or the, the portrait lens. And, you know, the thing that always comes back to is Jorgos's extreme knowledge of editing and how to make editing work. And he works with an editor called Jorgos as well, whose nickname is Blackfish. And those guys, <laughs> when, they get, when they get in that room, they really, really, they know how to cut, you know? And I think the rhythm of the film is totally works and helps as you say, the stew really kind of like boiled perfectly because, you know, you're jumping between so many different lens choices that would normally not necessarily, they, they would definitely jar, but that's what the, that's what the attempt is, is to jar the audience and like make you keep, keep, keep up with it in a way, you know? So, so many movies want to draw no attention to the camera, want to draw no attention to some of these stylistic elements where this is like, in the DNA. This is in the DNA of the movie. It is like so fundamental to it. Do you guys ever have a conversation of like, are we going too far? Are we going to draw too much attention to this? Do we want, I mean, I I can't imagine that because I feel like you, you get the point across. These are, these are almost like notes on a piano. Like if you're playing a composition and it's like, boom, I'm hitting this note very, very, you know, particular. So you're really paying attention to it. What is that conversation like of figuring out how your visual symphony of these different parts all play together? Uh, well, I I'm not going to let you off the hook. Is it, is it, is it intentional? Is it, is it random? Is it, oh, is it, uh, yeah. What's, yeah. This is when you, you're talking to I'm I'm just a mere mortal when it comes to your guys. <laughs> you know, like we're just so keeping up with him, and he'll like you know he'll walk on a set and he'll kind of he'll feel it and he'll kind of go oh, maybe we do this and you know we talk a bit about it and then I don't what we tried to do in most scenes is use all the lenses so we only had like five lenses and we'd mm-hmm. use each lens pretty much all like in each scene if we could and yeah. then he knew that he'd have that to 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 work with in the edit you know but like as far as what you're saying did he feel like he was going too far Jorgos with this film never felt like he was going too far and he was always yeah. impressing upon like the production designers to kind of really push it like you know don't don't feel like there's any boundaries and Shona Heath who is like an imaginary she's just full of ideas like it's like she just will always come up with an amazing idea but she had no real on set sort of uh knowledge as far as how a film gets made she's done one short film in like 20 years so this was like a huge oh, canvas wow. so james price uh has done a lot of films as an art director so the two of them created this beautiful sort of symbiosis where they were able to push each other and realize the madness of the visual sort of world that Jorgos wanted. And he was just always saying, no, more, go more. And yeah. I guess that lends into the whole film in a way. It, it's quite, uh, you know, it's an assault on a lot of levels and um, in a good way. And like, you know, what's interesting about this film as well is it's Jorgos's first time having a, a, a composer. So yeah. like somebody who's composed the music. So the music was there pretty much getting composed as we we're filming and it helped him figure out the rhythm of how he might make a scene work and like it, hmm. it really I think it goes to another level this film because of the composition of the, the score helping like it, it feels like a character it really does and oh it you know, totally does that music is there's, there's really interesting 
Yeah, he'd never been on a film set. Oh, he's never done a film before. It's his first soundtrack. Whoa. And yeah. it's it's so an important part of the film. Yeah, it's it sets such an interesting weird tone. Like it, I, again, like your cinematography, it's well, something. Well, I, I, that, I, I that, won't get into. Yeah, like, I love getting into because Jerskin's a really interesting guy because he he really really thinks about the thing and Jorgis would try and not give him any information. He's like you know, but he read the script and he's like got really into the emotion of it. And he decided uh, to do a lot of the um, the score on bladder based instruments. So like you know <laughs> stuff like bagpipes <laughs> or like. The stuff that's kind of wood instruments that you know has some kind of Frankenstein capabilities to them as well. <laughs> so I, think, I love that. I really, really think that makes sense, and it really shows in the film. You know, I, I think that the uh, the camera, your camera, loves Willem Dafoe too. Like oh, makeup man. and his face. That's true. Uh, okay, uh, that's true. You know, fair. I, I I love Willem Dafoe, but in this movie in particular, I, you I cannot take my eyes off him. Even for a second, it's like there's so much going on with the textures of his his skin and his you know sure. his countenance. It's like it's just such a uh... well, and his makeup is so extreme. Like the the makeup effect on him is so eye catching and crazy. And then these things that are shown as monstrous, like Willem Dafoe, is a lovely character who's who's loving and wonderful and thoughtful and you know just looks scary. Yeah, no, the writing of that is, it, you're bang on. It's, it's exactly sort of saying those things that just don't judge a book by its cover, you know? Um, and yeah, like Willem, he he kind of, he's such a great actor that underneath all his prosthetic, I, I, I only ever saw Willem being Dr. Godwin Baxter because I didn't see him after set. It was all, so he'd always arrive as this other character. He kind of knows it's Willem, but it, he was so yeah. not, um, he was like talking Scottish and, you know, he was like, he just looked totally different. But um you know, how, how is his accent? Some people say it goes into a bit Irish, and it goes. But I, I, I think he. I thought he owned it personally. It's always, <laughs> it's it's always hard for me. Mark Ruffalo's fucking yeah, Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they, uh, you know, Yorgos's films are always a bit peppered with interesting sort of ways of speech. But yeah, I have to, I have to, you know, hats off to Willem. I thought he did so great, as all the actors did, but like he 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 had to do the three hours or four hours in the makeup chair every day as well. Oh, I bet. So like your prep with Yorgos when you're prepping a scene to to shoot, you said that he he walks on set, but I'm assuming that there's been some kind of communication, I don't know, shot list, storyboard, some kind of a conversation, especially given the visual extremes that you're going to with this. What was the prep that you guys, uh, what, you know, what, what would you talk about before you shot a scene? Uh, I really like with Yorgos, you just sort of, I go back to saying you have a, like a, a list of tools to, at your disposal. Like we shot with one camera most of the time. We would have a dolly in a track and it would be, you know, simple sort of filmmaking tools. But he, that's that's the kind of, the rule book he kind of put himself. And that meant like, except for some scenes like where we're on the, the ship where we had to have a crane to kind of get to the height of the ship and track with them from there. That was the only time we ever used any kind of like camera technology that was a bit different to just a dolly in a track. So, you have that limited amount of like kind of uh tools for want of a better term then that means you sort of like you have your your rhythm and your language sort of set up for you and then it's just a matter of how you place the actors and you work the scene out with them you know and it, it really was like we did storyboards for some of the scenes like the reanimation and her jumping off the bridge because there was other departments who would like to know exactly what they're getting themselves into and yeah but 
for the rest of it, because he shoots in 360 a lot of the time, the kind of the production design had to shoot. They had to build everything. So they made these amazing composite sets. So every everywhere you looked in the set was basically shootable. And um, that, that sort of ticked that box. So in a way, all, he, all we had to do was figure out which way we were going to point in this beautiful set. So it, it wasn't like storyboards or shot lists were really going to be necessary. And I, I learned that from the favorite. He's not really a shot list storyboard kind of guy. The best thing about the favorite was that he used to have a digital camera back then and he'd take a still of what the angle he was thinking of would be. And then I'd work out the camera move for that angle. I could tell all the department what we we're doing. But on this film, he decided to, he's given up on digital stills and he's got like a Chamonix large format camera. So like he was going to show me a picture of that he he did go home and develop it that night and then scan it and bring it back in the next day himself so that was pretty <laughs> but as far as we he'd get like a, a lens on a stick and he'd talk it through he goes i think we'll do a zoom here we'll start close with emma we track you know zoom and track back then track over here we'll zoom in here so that's just the language that i kind of that that's the best way for me to kind of learn because I can figure it out as we're doing it. And then there's no like pouring over this idea. Like I find sometimes when you preempt something and you write shot lists and storyboards and it doesn't work out that way in a day, then you kind of feel a bit like, oh shit, why didn't it work out? Whereas if you're coming from another way, which is what Yorgos does, which is like get on the set, see how the actors are like feeling it. And then you kind of figure out a language of how that scene should be shot. And that, mm. that's a bit great. And you kind of have the time to do it in a day. And we did just about get everything done. We didn't go over too much, you know? Well, and, and I'm curious too, because you're shooting on uh, some of the lenses, super wide angle. How does that affect your lighting? Because it's going to be hard to not see lighting stands. And Well, yeah. Well, if you look at it, there's a lot of practicals in the scenes. So yeah. anything that's nighttime, there's a heck of a lot of practicals. And then everything else is sort of... You know, for the bigger sets, we built skies, to be honest with you. So we the aesthetic was, this would be, how would you shoot this if it was on a normal location? So we just created the same environment. So the sets were massive and like huge. So this, the lighting of the sky had to be big. So we just had tons and tons of lights up in the ceiling and we we diffused that. And that would be, that would, in, that would light into the rooms that we were filming like interior and it was just like we were on location really. So the, the, it made my life a little bit easier because I just knew I had to build a sky and then that Yorgos would not want any lights on film sets. So that was kind of like, Oh wow. That's a good rule book to have, you know? Well, that, that frees you up to kind of do the, you know, more improvisational. I don't, I don't want to. Sure, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's totally that. Yeah. And um, the, 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 create some problems because shooting on the ectochrome, it's a very slow stock. So we had to sort of help that along sometimes. And sometimes the scenes were a bit darker because of that, but in, and everything informs, like you could, as you say, you could make your life easy and shoot everything on one fast stock and that would be fine. And it would be an interesting film, but he really is a director who likes to kind of go, I really want to try this out because I think it's going to look amazing. And mm -hmm. um, let's, let's go down that journey. And by doing that, you kind of have a few hurdles to jump and try and figure out and solve. Uh, did you shoot the black and white stuff on black and white film or did yeah, you? I was on a uh, five, two, two, two double X. Beautiful stuff. Absolutely. We like, when we stopped, we kind of were shooting a lot of, uh, our sequence, but because the first half of the film is well, the first 30 minutes is in black and white, we kind of ran out of scenes to shoot on black and white. And I was always like, Oh, so <laughs> nice getting stuff back. Actually, there's an interesting mistake in that stuff as well as, uh, and I, I would like to tell your listeners never let this happen. <laughs> You want this effect, it's a good looking effect, but when you're shooting on film, right, um, there's a, a film camera has a pressure plate behind where the, the there's the gate and the film runs through uh, in front of the gate, but behind the film, 
there's a pressure plate and that's always aluminium silver so when you're shooting on black and white because it's a thinner negative the film the light would hit this silver plate and rebound back onto the to the neg so you get this weird double like kind of like halo effect uh like all the highlights kind of start having this weird kind of weird flare that doesn't it shouldn't be there and we were like what the hell is this i don't understand and none of us we kind of were asking all the technicians and they were like i don't know what that is and like then somebody finally said oh i think you need to have a black pressure plate for that whoa uh, silver yeah, one it's, and then everybody all of a sudden said oh yeah the black silver, the black pressure plate of course yeah, and then we, a, we fixed that the problem but it was like literally three quarters into our shooting of that oh my so, god it's, but it's, it's like, a it's flare. Yeah, it has yeah. this lovely, like, uh, oldie world sort of flare in, in the black and white stuff. So yeah, did you, I, you left that in? Halos, yeah. Yeah, we left. Well, we'd shot it, so we couldn't get it. We couldn't oh. figure out what the problem was. So oh, then that's... we figured it out, and then we kind of, like, fixed it. But then we only had, like, about, uh, you know, a third of the stuff, like, a quarter of the stuff to do. Um, and I kind of missed it once it was gone, actually. <laughs> Did did I, I came in just slightly late? Did you say that you uh, screened it in ca at camera image, and that uh, were you in the screening? Did you get the audience reaction for the you know people seeing this movie? Uh, I was at camera image, yeah, and um, I didn't watch it though because I've watched it a few times too many now. So I kind of like <laughs> uh, I tend to kind of say hello and then get out of there. But I I have talked into a few audiences, and uh, it's always been seems to be a, a very buoyant audience. You know, just some people are not too sure and a lot of people are who are getting it are laughing their heads off you know and then yeah the, the camera match is great because that was the first time uh the actors had come back from the strike so willem defoe was on set the two of us were up on stage oh nice we did a double act for all the the post film uh, questions and answers and he's he's really good at all that stuff <laughs> yeah. I, I was like shit man these guys are good <laughs> it's part of their he job says it, he says it with like such articulate sort of sensibilities and he, he sort of gets his point across whereas i i tend to dither a little bit yeah our, our screening at fox there was a lot of out loud laughter and yeah. i'm glad it was i'm glad it wasn't just me because i was laughing a lot in that movie and it really made me it was really a wonderful validation to hear other people but i gotta say that i think the movie will be polarizing definitely there were some people who were completely silent during that whole movie i don't know if they got it i don't know if yeah, it, it, yeah. it matched their well, sensibilities. also it's, it's a press but, screening yeah. and press screenings are notoriously stoic you know full of people who are you know taking notes or uh you I think know. as a film, it, it seems to sort of like catch people a little bit unawares. They're not sure what way to take it. And then they'll either go with it. And I think like a huge, a large percentage of people do warm to it. And it's like, in a way, it's a film that makes you feel good about yourself when you come out of it because, you know, it's a journey of discovery. And um, I feel like maybe somewhere like The Favourite was a bit more about jealousy and a bit more, you know, you can't compare any films, but I always like, oh, well, there's no films going to be able to be as popular as that, but we'll find out. And, uh, <laughs> I hope people really, you know, lean into it because it, it deserves it. It's really, it is, there's a lot of layers to it that isn't just about the comedy. It's got other issues, you know? Definitely, definitely. Well, and, and you've mentioned that it's a comedy and I feel like it, it is a comedy, but like the stereotype of a comedy, and I guess that you could counteract this a, a thousand ways. You could talk about Wes Anderson or whatever, but like <laughs> comedy, usually the look is not, so palpable as it is in this film and yet you know it still gets a great laugh a great reaction out of you can you talk a little bit about like how do you kind of get ready for like this isn't going to look like a comedy 
but it's still going to be really funny and people are going to laugh at it. Like, you know, when you're shooting on super fisheye lenses with vignetting and stuff like that, that is going to draw attention to the look in a great way. I mean, is that just something you're like, hey, that's that's Yorgos's problem. But um, well, no, I, don't, I think it's most people going to see this film would probably know something about Yorgos's type of cinema. And it really is like in his world for sure. But what I think is nice about it is that it seems to be working to a point where, you know, people who might have not connected with that so much with this film, because it is so funny and universal that you do kind of connect with it more so. And that yeah. the, the universe that Yorgos has created is one that you want to enjoy and get into with this film. And sometimes maybe his other films were a little bit more, you know, not so accessible that way. And this one really isn't, you know, I've always, I, I love reading Jorgos' scripts because he always has, a high slap count in his films, you know. And, uh, <laughs> I think this film, has, this film has quite a good few slaps in it that are really <laughs> It is slapstick humor in some ways, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely the scenes with Mark Ruffalo. And, oh, and God, he's so great. <laughs> It was so great yeah, to see Mark guys. Ruffalo. No, no offense to MCU movies, but it was just so great to see Mark Ruffalo like really take off the the leg weights and act like crazy and just go for it the way he did in that. I think yeah, Mark said in an interview where somewhere he's like, I felt like I just had to, I, I this, I like a crash and burn, or I'm gonna come out of this alive, you know. And I think he really put his heart into just being as uncomfortable in his his own kind of <laughs> capabilities as he as he could. But he, he's really funny in it, and um, you know they're all amazing. I have to say the ensemble is like is knockout in this, and Rami uh, Youssef is really one of the best straight men you'll see. He's in a so film good. About. He's a comedian by his nature, so he ha he gets to be the straight guy, and it, it's sort of like playing against type in that respect as well. Because usually he's doing kind of sort of comedy all the time, and he is hilarious in it, you know. And he, I've always loved watching him because his face just says so much, you know. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, we're running a little bit low on time, but before we go, is there any place that people can find you online to interact with you, see your work? I mean, obviously, you know, you've you've well, only I'm a bit made of a about so I don't have any social media. Uh, <laughs> at all uh, you so, have like four more productive hours in the day than the rest of us so. <laughs> probably yeah I, I would be i'd be in trouble if i get onto any of those social platforms <laughs> but I, I would say yeah check out films i've done on imdb and then go watch the films hopefully you'll like one or two of them. <laughs> excellent all right guys all right. thanks, thanks, Robbie. thanks so much Robbie. Great seeing you. yeah right. take care enjoy All right, so that was our interview with Robbie Ryan. It was so great having him on the show and, and chatting for a bit. I, I can't Thank you so much, Robbie. I mean, he's just a pleasure. He's just such a such a cool, fun guy to talk to. I, I just I, want to talk I, to him all day. I really like Robbie. He's it's, he's a lot of fun. I can't wait to like you know go get a beer with him at Camera Image or something. <laughs> so that's that'd be fun. Anyway, uh, Ben, you know what time it is? What time would that be? It's bill paying time. We have to thank our fine friends at Airy. Uh, oh, I see how you did that. Making the show possible, making the show happen. Uh, Airy, of course, makers of incredible motion picture equipment. But you know what a lot of people don't know? They also have a really good YouTube channel. The I was going to say snow cone makers. They make snow cone makers. <laughs> Not snow cones, actually. But I'm sure the Airy snow cone machine would be the most overbuilt, incredible German engineering of a snow cone machine ever. You know, my, my point is, though, is that their YouTube channel is really good. And lately, in the last two weeks... They 
they've had a couple of really good things on there, including like Airy France put up a showreel of a bunch of like really, really beautiful, beautiful projects, sort of like a, a montage of different French productions. And if you wanted to spend like three minutes just looking at some incredible cinematography, like really high level stuff, highly recommend watching the the Airy France uh, showreel that, that just went up on the channel. Also, if you are in the technical uh, crafts and you want to find out about color matching and color balancing for virtual production, they have another video up there, and this gets into more heady, more technical stuff, but if that is you, and I know there's a lot of people like that who are uh, listeners of the show, if you are a virtual production guru or someone who is involved in that, it's worth checking out their cool video. So uh, Jeff, definitely check out the Airy YouTube channel. They've got 127,000 subscribers. They don't need me promoting them, but <laughs> they're, they're clearly doing some, some good stuff, and I appreciate like you know Airy being there and really classing up the joint, really making making it, you know, a, a more safe space for professionals to be there and to do professional things and talk about professional stuff. And now, short ends. Hey, it's our short end time of the show. It's time when we uh, talk about our pet obsession of the week. Ben, what have you got going on this week? What are you all about? Uh, you know, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole of an older movie. Uh, not super old, but uh, 1982. That's, you know, 42 years. Uh, to a movie that I hadn't seen since I was a kid, but it's on Tubi, so you can check it out for free. And it's Death Trap. Have you seen Death Trap? Ooh, is that Charles Bronson? Who's no. In that? Okay. It is like a murder mystery. It's like a hard-boiled murder mystery starring Michael Caine, Christopher Reeve, and Diane Cannon, and oh, it's directed I've never by seen it. S- by Sidney Lumet. Hmm. And it's really great. And I remember seeing it as a kid and there's a it's full of twists. I don't want to ruin any of the twists for you because it's like nothing but twists. But it is fun to see like also like Christopher Reeve did a bunch of movies that weren't Superman, but he's probably best remembered for all his Superman movies. And this is something he made right in the middle of making all the Superman movies. It's uh, 1982. And he's so great. You kind of realize like, man, we lost Christopher Reeve. You know, obviously it's a huge tragedy because he's just a human being who, you know, seemed like he was a pretty good guy, but also like what an actor this guy was. And, you know, at the time he's kind of a a glamoury actor because he's playing Superman. Michael Caine is just on the other side. Like he's just getting a little middle aged looking. Diane Cannon is great. It's a it's an adaptation of a stage play and it is very stagey. And that just kind of becomes the style of it. And you kind of roll with it. Most of it takes place in uh, like the Hamptons in this beautiful, weird house. Uh, it's shot by, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He's still around, still working. Andre Bartowiak. Uh, oh, yeah. Andre Bartowiak. Oh, I, I know. Yeah. He's, a, he's a client of Hot Rod. Oh, yeah. Uh, Andre's yeah. great. No. Uh, yeah. That's... So he shot it. The cinematography is really good. And, uh, you know, in terms of like taking something that is a stage play and making it really move and making it really visual and making it really pop, it's very funny. It's like wickedly funny. And, uh, you know, the other night I was surfing through Tubi and I was like, what what's on here? And I saw Death Trap and I'm like, I haven't seen this in a long time. It's always fun to revisit something you saw, you know, a bazillion years ago and kind of go like, how does it hold up? Does, you know, does it, how do my jaundiced, jaded old man eyes see this thing that I once saw as a, as a child? And I think it's really, really good. And I'd be interested to hear what other people, including yourself, have to say about it. So that's my short end. I, I will totally watch that for sure. We um, should get Andres on here. 
Oh, we could totally have uh, Andre Babarkoviak come on. I, I would love to have him on. We can totally make that happen. I will see I'm, if I can try to make it happen when I'm in L.A. next. So have him talk great. about Death Trap. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession this week? Well, I can't remember if it was your pet obsession or not in a previous episode because we've talked about it a couple of times already. But I went and saw Godzilla Minus One. Uh, Godzilla Minus One. Holy crap. You you were absolutely right. Boy, did it's so I good. Boy, did I enjoy that. I really, really liked that movie. And I'm not the only one. That movie is uh, like 4.8 uh, stars out of five for audience ratings, 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is a fun ride. And you know, look, taking nothing away from all the other Godzilla movies, but they've always been B films. Nothing about Godzilla yeah. has ever been like, you know, this is high art. This is Academy Award art. This is, you know, uh, serious drama. But I got to say, Godzilla minus one really feels like a real elevation of the entire of the entire sort of genre and all of the the franchise. What they've done, I, it's my favorite Godzilla movie in decades, like perhaps all of all the Godzilla movies. I thought it was really, really well put together and uh, I, re- I really enjoyed it. And I know it's, you know, ultimately it's a it's silly. It's a, you know, a person in a rubber suit or CG or whatever, whatever it is. I think you it's know, all CG in this one. I it's don't think all there's CG, any rubber suit. It, it has, still has the reminiscence of like some some rubber suit. But you know what? I, I appreciate them trying to take this art form and move it into modern day and doing it in a really smart way. And I'm not disparaging any of the others in fact actually there's going to be another uh godzilla versus kong that's coming out there wasn't a preview before this but the poster was in the lobby so yeah and i like those movies but i have to say that godzilla is such a japanese story that when i saw godzilla minus one what kind of struck me is it's not that no one else can make a godzilla movie or a kaiju movie that works i I think the monarch series on on apple tv is excellent gareth edwards godzilla was good um i i like godzilla versus kong like i'm i'm into all of them i think you know they're kind of kitschy and fun but i think that there's something about the japanese psyche that this taps into that culturally it's hard to make it not as a Japanese film. It's so specific to their culture and uh, nothing wrong with that. And again, like I think it's okay for other people to make giant monster movies. I'm not saying you can't do it uh, or even that somebody else can't make a Godzilla movie. But like what I appreciate about Godzilla minus one is it goes back to what Godzilla was about, which was world war two. For sure. And, and that I really appreciate. So I thought, I thought it was great. Well, I think that's just about going to do it for this, uh, this episode. We have to thank a few people, so let's uh, let's do that. I'll go ahead and thank uh, Alana Cody, our incredible producer, who's been kicking all the butt and making this happen, uh, making all of our shows happen. We have to thank uh, Kaze Alatracci, who has been putting together new music. Hey, did you happen to listen to any of the stuff that, that Kaze sent I did, sent I you? did. Yeah, yeah, I did listen to it. I felt like it was all very war story sort of stuff, and uh, I'm going to have a lot a, of that. Yeah, uh, I'm going to have to t- talk to him about our theme. I don't know if he's going to listen to he, this. There's some themey stuff in there. Oh, he did okay. some theme stuff. Well, yeah. make sure you send me what you think the, the best themey stuff is, because I thought it was almost all war story. But uh, we're going to put together another war story episode. So for those of you who remember our old war stories, we are assembling and putting them together now. It takes a while to make those things happen, but uh, we are working on it. So uh, I expect in 2024 at some point here. 
we're going to drop another great War Story episode, so something to look forward to. And of course, we have to thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who's having a tough week. Ben, we uh, we hope that uh, everything uh, works out well, and uh, we can't. We appreciate you, Ben. We're here for you. We're fighting for you. Absolutely, Ben. Anything that we can do, of course, let us know. We're really uh, happy that you're making this happen. And uh, thanks very much, Ben. Speaking of Ben's, Ben, where can people find you if they want to track you down outside of uh, this show? Uh, BenRock.com. Go to BenRock.com and you can uh, check out my reel and learn all about me. Find my social media links. Blah, blah, blah. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. HotRodCameras.com. That's where I'm at most of the time, uh, or quite often. If not, you can find me over at LinkedIn. I've, I've been getting a, quite a few uh, emails from LinkedIn uh, people lately, and that's that's been kind of fun. Uh, all right. I think that's just about going to do it. Ben, you want to take us out? Thanks for tuning in <laughs> we gotta workshop this we gotta come uh, up with something uh, i gotta gotta uh, yeah i'm just gonna awkwardly hit stop on the recordings now me too me too okay. all right this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on itunes and connect with us on facebook and twitter thanks for listening <laughs>